All right, and we are live for season three of Siren Sundays. Guys, we made it to season three. Can you believe it? Um, <laughs> we have a few viewers already tuning in. Hello, Jasmine. Yes, Liddy again. Hello. <laughs> so we'll just wait a few minutes um, to get a couple more viewers. Thank you for everyone who tuned in on time. Punctuality is a great virtue to have, so I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, um, I'm just trying to remember what we were finishing off our conversation about, but I guess I can't even remember at this point. I think like good, we were talking about Ikigai, I think. Ah, uh, yes, finding your purpose for life and your the meaning of your life and that being something that makes you happy, helps the world, brings you money. And it was that fourth thing, yeah. But then you were saying your doers, what did you call your thing again? My doers code. Doers code, yeah. And you said that's on your website. Yes. It's do something, do what you enjoy, do what you're good at or get good at it. Do what makes a difference and do what's right. Right. Awesome. All right. So about a minute and a half in. I know we're going to have an amazing discussion. So I'm going to get the ball rolling. Hello to all the people out in the world there in our big, beautiful ocean. I am Lashanti Jup, the host of Siren Sundays, and welcome to season three. Yes, after all that travel, I am happy to announce that I am back in the Bahamas, guys. I took 31 hours of travel, and I'm still running off of adrenaline because I'm so excited to be here, so excited to be doing this, be doing season three and having the amazing Dr. Anselino Davis on my show, who I'm so happy to have here. He's been super involved, even in the comments on the show, giving all that key information whenever we're missing something. So thank you so much for being on my show. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. And I'd like to say hi to Los Guapos in Mexico. Uh, Leo just said, hola, papi. Hola, Leo. <laughs> so, yeah. Awesome. And so today's topic is sustainable conservation and science. Before we get into the topic, Dr. Lino, what can you tell people about yourself in regards to how you got to where you're at in your career with conservation? What are the, the things you did growing up, the education you took, even some of your work experience that got you to where you're at right now? So I think some of the some of the key experiences that really got me here. Uh, firstly, it, in primary school, we used to run around the corner or walk around the corner to my mom's work at the botanical gardens. That's actually where I first met Eric Carey through my mom. And I also got a lot of interaction with Dr. Jeffrey Lin, who was the senior vet at the uh, Ministry of Agriculture. And I also met Dr. Maurice Isaac at that time. And so all of these, like, these uh, people around me that were engaged in conservation, they knew that I was into science. I used to get all kinds of science books and stuff like that. And then in the gardens, in the Royal Botanical Gardens, the workers there, we were like walking around and I would always be the one asking them, what's that plant or what's this plant? And they were super patient with me. Um, yes. And so I, I definitely remember that, having that support growing up. Um, then when, when I was in COB, I actually had to, I, I had three jobs to work to just get my associate's degree. And right. so I was a chauffeur um, for Siobhan Bethel, who like, she gave me a car and everything. And I helped to like teach her kids about fish and tutor them and stuff like that. So I really got that tutoring bug. Mm -hmm. um, I had the Maralu Tolo Scholarship Award um, 
through the Life of Key Foundation, I think they supported it. Um, speaking of awards, the Bath Scholarship through um, Brief is available now. So if anyone's listening who has some students, yes. I'm mm-hmm. signed that. But um, eventually, I finished my associate's degree and I was asking to get some fish out of the botanical gardens. And Eric here was like, you need something better to do with your life. Literally, that's exactly what he told me. That sounds like Eric. (laughs) And so he put me on the Kirtland's project. And that was the first time that I got to interact with these scientists in the field. And, you know, they're, they're teaching me about what real science is. And it's not just something that's in a textbook. And it's not some animal like an elephant or kangaroo that you ain't never going to see in your life. But I'm I'm in the bush with our native plants, our birds. And then I get to go into classrooms. And I remember there was like, this is the Kirtland's project. We're talking about birds. And yeah, we like once in a while, we'd have a bird that maybe um, we didn't get to release it. And so we kept it so it's not flying around in the night. and we take it into the classroom, let the kids see it before we release it. Mm-hmm. Then there was occasionally I find a big snake in the forest and I'm like, oh, we're doing a presentation tomorrow. So why not take a snake? And they're like, this is a bird project. But snakes always get them. Kids love to see snakes, the mm-hmm. danger and excitement. And so, yeah, I, I really love um, the science part of it, but also being able to take what I learned and give it to someone else. Right. And and so now I get to see like, like I went into class and told um, Scott Johnson's class about um, the Kirtland's project back in the day. And so (laughs) on the Kirtland's project, they called me Grandpa Alino, right? Because I was like the first student to go through the thing. Um, (laughs) And there's students like um, Walter Neely was, he was just a primary school kid when we were in Tarpon Bay. And he remembers us like letting him hold a pigeon uh, showing him how to hold it correctly. Um, he taught me how to catch centipedes with my hand. So like... <laughs> centipede? Yeah. Oh, you really out your mind. Mm-mm. Yeah. So, so these, I love nature, but... But these are, these, this is like traditional knowledge that we're not getting because, you know, we, we hear like, oh, centipedes will kill you and stuff like that. But there are people all over the Bahamas doing all kinds of really cool stuff. But yeah, I got a lot of scholarships. I got a lot of people support me through along the way. Right. Uh, yeah, I see my sister is on. Hey, Nikki. And I know my, my family is listening in. Mommy was always uh, very supportive. Um, yeah, I remember that first time going off to school. Mm-hmm. I had like a, a little bag, like a, like a carry-on bag and a backpack. And um, that, like, I didn't, I don't, I didn't even remember what the guy looked like that gave me the scholarship uh, right. Wiley. and so i'm like <laughs> inside an airport in maryland and i'm like i hope this person remembers what i look like i i had met him for like 45 minutes maybe and he offered yeah. me a scholarship and i was like yeah and like the next two weeks i had a visa my first um student visa and i was off to college on a wing and a prayer and that was, it was just like some really cool um, opportunities. Right. 
So what does um, sustainable conservation and science entail? Like when you say that to somebody, or now that we're talking about it on this show, what does that mean when you say these things together? So sustainability always means <laughs> letting something continue as long as possible. My dog's asking me to go out. Um, <laughs> yeah, hold on, please. Um, so, so sustainability just means allowing it to go on as long as possible. And you have social, economic, and environmental issues right. to deal with. Socially, for sustainable science, you want to teach and allow people to learn and develop the knowledge that's appropriate to our needs for science. Mm -hmm. Economically, you need the funding. Right now, we have lots of conservationists who don't have a job or whose organization itself is actually <laughs> suffering for lack, of, for lack of funding. And then the environment is not just the, uh, the natural environment, but also things like the political and cultural environment that we have to deal with. I'm going to let him outside right now. I'll be right back. Definitely. Always on <laughs> So, in just going from some of the notes, some of the things related to social, like you said, is education, language, law, enforcement, and policy. And he's back, so I'll let him continue. Great. I thought that was going to take longer. <laughs> nah, it's just right there. Um, but yeah, but, uh, so another part of the social elements of conservation and science is like, having these standards that are understood and accepted by your community. Right. And that includes laws. Mm -hmm. you know, if we have a law related to the environment, right now we just had the biological resources and traditional knowledge um, law just um, was put out for review. And that was really, um, that was really interesting to see that the Department of Environmental Planning and Protection is now publishing these out there, asking for review. And scientists like myself, it's not just that we want to have an opinion or be a, a mouthpiece for it, but then when I reviewed it, I could see that you know there were there were certain groups that maybe were not identified as partnering for right. these laws or there were, were ways in which I perceived the law as being um, vulnerable to exploitation um, for uh, political or financial gain or exploitive of the people in the communities. Where yeah, the, I, yeah. That's a really good thing to talk about, you know, because I think a lot of times, and I think actually I know a lot of Bahamians actually think that with some of these environmental policies and laws and regulations come into place, it's this whole concept of, oh, it's just those conservationists trying to take things away from us when really, no, this is all a part of the sustainability, all a part of conservation. And we are using science to make these things happen. We need to know and understand the species that we're trying to protect so that we can then make laws and policies that we know can keep this um, sustainable. Like when we talk about Nassau grouper, we put a season in place right? Because we need to know how their life cycle works and how we can keep fishing them sustainably. So that's the conservation, that's the science. And that it's also interesting that you're saying this is the first time you've seen them put it out for review, correct? The right. department. Yeah. And Which is good, right? Because now laws, they're yeah. showing, they're vetting it to not just government officials, but it's open to anyone, right? Anyone, including right. scientists, including communities. So that's really good to know. I think a lot of people don't know that that happened. 
And a lot of times you find that, especially just for people not in conservation, they feel like things just kind of get thrown at them or Nassau is always telling the other islands what to do when really, you know, the information is not being communicated to them. And we need to figure out better ways of getting that out there. Like, how did how do we get more people to know, hey, this thing is being under review, let's review it, right? And this is part of the perspective thing. Right now in our laws for a law to be passed and <clears throat> for the acts to be passed, they have to be gazetted, right? right? Mm -hmm. And that means you publish it in the newspaper. You're missing, like, you just like miss tons <laughs> of opinions, right? Especially uh, in my age group. <laughs> yeah. And, and who's going to go and read that like that? And this is also part of the reason why through science and perspective, I deliberately, like I downloaded those laws and I put the effort into actually reading them and then giving my, my opinion and perspective, but also showing everyone that's on Facebook or Twitter, yeah. this is where I went to download it myself. Right. I encourage you to read it yourself. But um, but for the most part, a lot of people nowadays, it's like you get the information from the mouthpiece of your church, your mm -hmm. political party, your family member, and then you kind of regurgitate that or you formulate your opinions on that. And I'm really interested in developing a community of people that is more judicious in their reading or consumption of information and and making citizens in the Bahamas that are what I think is a good citizen that holds the government accountable, educates themselves on their rights and their abilities, knows about their own environment and can come to these uh, decisions or opinions themselves without being kind of like fed. Yeah. All right. So... Yeah, definitely. And I think another thing that people probably struggle with, and I'll admit that myself even struggles with when it comes to these environmental laws. Yes, I went to school and I studied um, marine biology, but when it comes to reading laws and policies, the language that's used is also very hard to honestly to read and understand. And I think it's really important for people like yourself who understand this to do what you did, you know, like post it somewhere and explain what this is saying and what this means so that people can then look at it and then form their own opinions, whether it be that they agree with your points or they say, actually, no, what you said didn't make sense. And this is what I think. And then it can begin that dialogue with people who are not only conservationists, but straight down through the community. But what are some of the ways that you think we can, can get the information out there better? Because I know we talked about this education part of it and it's not happening formally in schools, but what in your opinion would be the best way to start getting you know, this, this conservation information out to get more people involved? Do we just start you know, holding meetings? Do we start like a, like a book club kind of thing? Like how can we make this happen? So by the time you get to you know, 12th grade in school, the subject that you're probably the best at is reading. <laughs> reading and writing. You know why? Because you use that in every class. You do. You like, even for a math class, you have to read the questions. Mm -hmm. Now, what if inside your math class, you had your students, hey, this is the average amount of fish that a Bahamian fishing vessel brings in. 
This is how far they have to travel. And this is the fuel efficiency of their boat. Now you have a math question that's actually pertinent to this student. And you're going to get that one student who's like, I don't need math. I'm going to be a fisherman. But now you could be a sustainable fisherman that's actually making money and knows how much to charge for the fish that you catch. Exactly. And a lot of teachers, I think, aren't adapting their lessons to incorporate our Bahamian wildlife, our Bahamian culture, and even things like laws and religion. And when you take religious studies in the Bahamas, it's really Christian studies or Catholic studies if you went to St. Augustine's College, right? Like some people. Oh, boy. We're right? not part in that. But but it's it's definitely interesting. And I went to SAC, everyone, so you know. Um, Typical SAC person. You have to, they will always let them know that you went to SAC. I I mean, it's full disclosure. It's full disclosure. Um, (laughs) So so it's like you can integrate science into everything. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of people don't know that the diversity statistics that we use all through biology, right. that was originally applied to words inside documents. So using that to analyze how varied the vocabulary was inside a document. And then a lot of scientists, they get stuck in this mindset where you can only use these biological principles for animals. And in my dissertation, I used it for tourists and citizen scientists and human beings that were doing different things. And so when you like kind of step out of that and understand that you can adapt things, I think it makes it a lot better. And that's that's what I think I would like to see more of. And mm-hmm. if you want me to help you adapt it inside your class, give me a shout. Uh, it's yeah, not yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think. I think it's important. Just it's one of those things where just like if you want to throw some sciencey terms in this, just like species have to evolve to adapt to their environment. We really have to start evolving our education system and adapting to the new ways that students can digest information. Like you said, a lot of people do. I love how the sackers are in the comments going. <laughs> so a lot of <laughs> roll, I guess. A lot of people go to school and are discouraged because it is a lot of reading and writing. And when you get things like these real world examples that you talked about, like I find that you will find somebody who's not very good in math, but when you put it in real terms, like when it's their money, now you're talking about their money, they will be able to tell you interest rate and all sort of stuff because it's now something relatable. And it's like, it's a different learning style for them. They need that pragmatic, those like real practical examples to make that connection. And if you don't make those connections with things, um, science is often not connected to how these things are created. So I think a lot of people, again, like I was saying, they think that when conservation projects happen, they don't understand all the science that goes into that before that decision is made. All the research and all of the the questions and the consultations that happen before these things kind of pop up out of nowhere. So we really do, um, just as conservationists in the Bahamas, we have to get a lot better at communicating this information so that we can have like this constant flow of engagement with the public. Yeah. I took a tangent, but. Well, well, no, it's, it's, it's cool that you like talk about these, like that we talk about these different students and who's making the, who's thinking about it, right? 
Mm -hmm. um, inside our political arena, inside that House of Parliament, it's like everyone in there is a lawyer. And 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 I'm like, I'm like, how can how can they be drafting laws or enacting laws when they don't actually understand and making like making deals about where the um the protected areas are or who can do this type of thing or or the next and they haven't been swimming on these coral reefs and they've never been on a fishing boat or they've never seen the peace bank and these these things are really um sensitive issues um mallory in the comments says we need a freedom of information act and and that's i think that's a really um key element of sustainability in science right science you need to have information that people can use to make decisions right or that people can use to assess what's going on and if we don't really have the information from the past to say this is what was allowed at this point in time on this location and then we're here 10 years later and we say oh that's the result of that happening. That was really good or that was really bad. Right. Right. We have data from the Exumakees Land and Sea Park that's managed by the Bahamas National Trust. Right. We know how great that worked for the grouper and fish inside there. But we also now recognize that the conch inside there, they're getting old because mm -hmm. there's not new conch coming in. So you have right. a great romantic honeymoon location for Kong, but then their babies grow up and move somewhere else. So mm -hmm. now we know that we need to have more of these protected areas around the country. Um, you know, having a Freedom of Information Act, I think would be really good as well, because then we could have students get that information in school. Imagine if you were in eighth grade and for your BJC or whatever, you had to download or gain access to information that you have a right to as a citizen and then analyze that or assess that for your BJC mm -hmm. in conservation or social studies. Can you imagine the difference that that would make for students? To see I that would be happy that I don't have to do it. <laughs> but if you had a true freedom of information act, that would yeah. be, it would make it easy. Yeah, and it would be a part. Uh, we'd have a lot more argumentative um, people, but who are more informed about what they're talking about as well. I think. Right, and, and just to go back a bit to, I think I can't remember which point you had made this, but it made me think of this whole concept of, and I'm sure you you've dealt with this when, like you said, when we have something that's in place and ten years go by and we now assess it. Um, a lot of times what also is left out is when data is not like properly collected and analyzed this conservation right that we've just done it we find out it isn't sustainable we don't have the evidence but to the you know to to just someone who's on the ground they may think oh well but we've been doing it this way for decades why are you now trying to change it but it's like no because science can predict right science can tell you hey what you're doing right now even though it seemed like it was sustainable before there are different factors coming into play. And I think that's something important to kind of note. And if you could just dive a bit into that, just how, how important it is to just have that citizen science aspect. Like when fishermen are fishing and they're collecting these fish, it's really important to know the weight and the length and the size of these fish, because there may be small you know, increments of decrease over time that you don't really notice unless you look 
at a, a larger scale, you look at a bigger picture and it's not just something that's kind of getting pulled out of the air. It's really the science that's informing us to say, well, listen, this is the trend, right? Trends. We see this is what's been happening and this is what we think will happen if we continue this way. This is why we need to implement a season or increase the size limit for catching. So yeah, so sorry, I'm like rambling, but right. We're right. just talking a bit about how science so changes, yeah. things change. Yeah, there there are three um, three things that I want to talk about here that that tie in data to um, the effects and and our current situation. Firstly, like birds, I was at a Birds Caribbean regional meeting in two thousand nine, and the researchers, in their mind, these are these are foreign researchers that visit the Bahamas for short periods of time, and they they in their minds. Piping plovers were super hard to find and like nobody knows where they are. And I remember some guy getting up and he's like, oh, it's a bunch of them over there on that beach. <laughs> Which <laughs> happens, right? <laughs> right. And so, so, so now then after that, they return and they return again and again. And now they're interacting with local people and getting this um, traditional knowledge that can change science and change it significantly and very quickly because in the past all the researchers they come down during their u.s school vacation yep. they come down during their u.s christmas break and spring break and they they're introduced to one hotel that they know to be a safe hotel they stay there every year and they're researchers that had been visiting the Bahamas since before we were independent. Mm -hmm. So imagine a class visiting your country and this class and this same curriculum is older than your nation. Right. Telling their students about your nation. And then they're publishing and telling you what your nation is like mm -hmm. after two weeks in our country a year. That's, that's kind of biased science. And now we have the opportunity where um, like Eric Carey and uh, the Bahamas National Trust, the Nature Conservancy, and uh, the U.S. Um, Forest Service, they said, you know what? What if we got Bahamian students? Uh -huh. What if we live here and Ooh. not where we teach them the science, but then they're going to be here and they're going to perpetuate that? Mm-hmm. And so now you have myself, you have Zico McKenzie, Nigeria Miller, um, Scott Johnson, and it's it's I'm getting goosebumps now, but like like it's when powerful. yeah, when yeah, it's powerful when you talk about snakes. If you say anything about snakes in the Bahamas, they can say, Oh, the the Rasta guy with the snakes, right? From he Rasta no more. Yeah, he cut his locks now. So that for his um for his public persona, he gotta build that back <laughs> up a little bit. But um and and people see me inside the mall and they say, like, oh, you the dude for, the science dude from TV, right? From from Facebook or whatever, right? And I think that's really super cool that we have this internal um science community now. Like yeah, Dr. It. Yeah, it's amazing. Then like even crystal, like the minute you see crystal, plastic, plastic pollution. Yeah. Like, and then yeah. you see Mark, Mark Daniels, plants. All yeah. you see is plants. And I and I love that. And I think it's so important to have 
iconic Bahamian scientist to inspire younger Bahamians to see that, you know, it's not out of their reach. It's not just Bill Nye, the science guy on TV, because that's what I grew up watching. And, you know, Bill Nye is great, but there's, here it is, a non-Bahamian white male on TV doing science that I think is cool, but I don't have anyone I can relate to, but I definitely, and I think we talked about it, um, in a couple of episodes ago, I think with Eric, when we were saying it's so nice to, to have this, like you said, the Scott Johnsons and the, the Anselino Davises and these people who kids are now starting to see on Facebook, posting mm -hmm. the videos and they have access to this information and you learn amazing things. And, and I, I love it. I honestly, I'm and like you said, I'm enjoying this, this community that we are building, especially of the Mer people. So, so I'm yeah. going to be a little biased. Shout out to the Mer people. Sorry, Scott and Mark, but you know, <laughs> Marine is where it's at. But of course, in the Bahamas, you know, Marine and Terrestrial, they, they intermingle very closely. So I don't even think you can fully say, you know, separate terrestrial and marine conservation. It's always hand in hand. So, yeah. which is <laughs> probably another thing. That's one of the things that really, um, that really excites me about my work because I'm both marine and terrestrial. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's opened a lot of opportunities for me. Yeah. Um, we were talking about the sustainability and science in these different areas. The next one that I wanted to talk about is fishing. Hmm. So I I am always inside these conversations and you know what they say about fish, there's always more fish in the sea. And there's so, fish in the sea. <laughs> right, there's plenty of fish in the sea. There's always more fish in the sea. Um, I always have to tell people, not all those fish could eat, right? And you also exactly. say, yeah, there's more fish in the sea, but how far do you have to go to get it? And this is one of the key things that with fisheries data, we if we had good fisheries data, we can say how many fishermen are in the industry? Yeah. How many fish are they bringing back per trip? Mm -hmm. How long are they out on that boat? How big is that boat that they're on? I was going to say, and what equipment are they using to find and catch these fish? Right. Yeah. And so, like, the guys are, man, my grandfather, he used to go out and bring back a boat full of fish every week. I say, you know your grandfather was sculling that little dinghy boat, right? Exactly. Hand line. Yeah. <laughs> hand line, sculling a dinghy boat. And I've seen guys, um, Santana in Exuma. We went there for, I think, my wife's birthday, like back in the day. Mm -hmm. And she calls her son. After you order your food, she calls her son. And dude comes walking out of the ocean with lobster in his hand. And you're like, like that's that's a totally different that's experience <laughs> that you ever, than you're ever going to get anywhere else, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like most people don't have this perspective because their interaction with conch, grouper, lobster, it's I pay you and you put it on my plate. It's right. already chopped up. So I don't even, I don't, you don't even know how much baby conch that is. Yeah, yeah. They don't, they don't even see the face on the, on the organism that they're eating. Right. They yeah, don't know that it's grouper because it might be right. something else. Yeah, it's important to to think here. This is another thing, right? Like if, if the average person, the, the consumer doesn't understand the science that's going behind, you know, some of the things that we say. And you said, you know, all they're seeing is the fish is coming in. The fish is still coming there. But you don't understand the fact that and I'm going to someone told me this like a couple of years ago. And it blew my mind when I, it actually resonated. The way we fish now is adapted from 
war weapons. Like the technology that is being used to fish is technology that was developed for war. Sonar to find these giant schools of fish miles and miles out where before it was, you know, your grandfather in the little dinghy boat with a hand line, only maybe going a mile out, but people are going further to get fish and they're able to go further because they have these injures and sonar and that's detrimental to the environment. And so just because you see this still coming in and then you hear scientists saying something, you know, it, it looks like a contradiction almost. It almost looks like the tree huggers or the, the reef huggers, which don't hug reefs by the way, guys. But you know, it almost just looks like we're just saying one thing when really a whole nother thing is happening. And that's why kind of, you know, like you said, the education and the social and the economic, all of this needs to tie in together. Because if, if we're not in sync with all of this, it almost just looks like everybody's tooting a different horn and you can't even figure out who's telling the right. truth. So that's just, you know, it's just, I just felt like that was perfect to interject there when you said yeah. they're not even seeing, all they see is the cut up conch already or the, the tail of the snapper. They see two little snapper tail on there, but they're not understanding how these fishermen have to work to get it. Demand is what's driving it. And that's why, you know, like when we said, it's a grouper season, it's closed season. Don't, don't even, if you see someone selling grouper, don't buy it because then now you're encouraging it. Encourage them to go and get something else. Like, oh, ask for lionfish right now. It's an invasive species. It tastes pretty good. And you're also helping the environment and you're giving grouper time to, you know, do their thing, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and and the, the lionfish eat the babies of all these other fish. So if you eat the lionfish, then you don't have that pressure on your grouper. So they ain't eating the grouper off of your plate. So that's that's another reason to do it. Um, we you we're talking about um, the sustainability of these species and this right. fish thing. Um, conch. If you think a conch takes four years to grow to grow old enough, right? And if that some will take longer. Some take longer, and that's just for them to get the opportunity to be interested in maybe finding a mate and having some babies. Mm -hmm. That's not saying that they're guaranteed to have babies because they're so far apart. You ever see conch walk? These right? Yeah. You you take you know two days to go and reach up to this next conch, and then you find out it's the same gender as you. That that ain't even gonna work. You know what I mean? Oh, waste of time. <laughs> yeah. But um, but what people don't understand is because they take four years to grow up, you can actually destroy the conch fishery this year. And we don't know until 2024. Exactly. So now, next year, you are fishing inside an overexploited resource. So now you can't make enough to off the conch. Mm -hmm. So now you got to hit something else and hit something else. And it cascades down yeah. until you already ruin everything. Right. Nobody wants to conch, you know. So <laughs> the, that, that's why. And, and like I said, you said four years, but I, you know, it's like five to seven years. And then oh, you, and you probably remember the number conch only reproduce when they're in large groups. They will not, if you take a male and a female conch, they're not going to reproduce unless there are a bunch of other male and females. And I'm not sure. Do you have the numbers on that? I can't remember. Be like 50 something per hectare or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, like we're like way below that now. Mm. And yeah, I see dudes them cracking out these baby conch all the time. And I'm like, dude, scary. what are you doing? And, and then I, I asked them, I said, you know, what if we, like right now, today, we just started, you know, wait until everybody have two babies. And then, you know, yeah. We could trap that. <laughs> then you could die. 
right? No, I'm saying like for human yeah. beings. <laughs> after every human has two babies, then you could die. You could die. Go what if you start going and fishing inside the primary schools and the high schools and just culling all these all these little children? Yeah. Eventually, you ain't gonna have no more Bahamians, right? right? That's what we do into the conch and fish populations. See, the that's beautiful. The way you just said it like that, and I think that resonates so well with people. And this is the way we have to start communicating the science to create the sustainable conservation. Of course, I'm going to keep plugging in this title <laughs> wherever I can, right? Yeah. And and the, the, the last example that I want to bring up is tourism. If it's one thing we have numbers on, it's tourism. Yeah. Like it all mm -hmm. kind of Right. We know how many people came by plane, boat, um, how much they paid in customs. And you know, if they went diving, if they went fishing, you know, if they went right. to the casino, how many days mm -hmm. they like we have really good data on tourism. Like Stuart Cove, they can tell you how many people they had to refund money when there was an oil slick and all the people got covered in oil. Right? You have the you have um during the different hurricanes, you have a hotel that can say, these are the people that canceled their reservation because they saw a hurricane come in. Right. You have, they can say, these are the people that were scheduled to leave, but couldn't leave mm -hmm. because a hurricane came through. So then you can say, if there's a, if there's a hurricane, a major hurricane in the Bahamas, there's actually this, this cool well, for me, it's interesting data. It's not cool. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> but you see around the, the halo of time around a hurricane, there are people that are speculating like, oh, this hurricane is going to be bad. I'm not coming to the Bahamas anymore. So they pull out. Then there's the the people that they dip out early. Mm -hmm. and you can see this like, this like mass exodus. Yeah. And then when it's really, really bad, you get disaster tourism. So I looked at that on my um, in my dissertation. This is one of the questions that I was looking at. And like when Haiti had the um, the earthquake, right? Science, this this weird thing, a bunch of American disaster tourists came down to help. But when they weren't building houses, they were out bird watching because they never got to go bird watching in Haiti. Mm -hmm. And you don't really think about this, but you can see human behavior in all of these things and the fear and how long does our economy quiet down when there's a hurricane, when there's a major hurricane? A lot. Right. Liquor sales go up though. <laughs> yeah, liquor sales go up. But that's also something that you can, you can talk yeah. about and you can use science to determine these social impacts. So um, how much, how long after the hurricane or the major damage can the government actually support people financially yeah. our national insurance is paying out this money mm -hmm. but if you look at the numbers that's a finite resource right right you know, and to flip that it also is a way for people to understand hey if a hurricane is coming I need to have X amount of money because I need to potentially last X amount of time. And then that gives better financial planning, right, for people. And I think that's something that Bahamians struggle with. We need better financial literacy. And it's amazing how, like you're saying, the science can actually contribute to that. Like we can now start thinking about our economy in a different way, just simply off of scientific data that we can collect 
on tourism, on hurricanes, on all of these different things and how for the Bahamas it just intertwines, you know? And one of the things, so, so I do um, a presentation called Seeing Sustainability that I do for organizations and, you know, school groups, uh, businesses. And I also do these consultations. And one of the things that um, I'm really getting people to think about now mm -hmm. is do you have your hurricane buffer? Because right now, the hurricane that hit um, Abaco and Grand Bahama, yeah. Hurricane Dorian, that's, you know, once every 10 years, once every 11 years, something like that passes through the Bahamas. And it doesn't hit the same island every time. But when it's your turn, it's your turn. And does your business have the ability to survive that? How long can you go and pay your employees, you know, 50% or 60% of their salary and survive and then get back up and running again? Right. And for a government, how long can you do that? And this is data that we can get. And the science says that these storms are going to be more frequent and more powerful. So we need to be thinking, how often can our country take a six-month hit to tourism? How, and, and where is our resources? So Nassau kind of, New Providence kind of small, right? So when the hurricanes come up to the right or the left, we duck out. But right now, <laughs> With our economy like it is, if our turn is next, yeah, we ought to look bad. And, and, and we can look at the tourism data and see what each of these storms have meant in the past and what it means in the future. And it's the same with the oil spills. So you look at oil inside the Gulf of Mexico and all of those um, places that got hit really hard and how long did they take to... Just find some sense of normalcy. How long does it take to recover? How long does it take to clean up? Um, do, you know, do you know how long it took them? You, you, it doesn't. It, you, it, no one has cleaned up an oil spill. So oh. the Exxon Valdez, that was more than 30 years ago. And they still have oil. You dig down just a, under a few pebbles and there's oil still there in the bedrock, right? Mm. In, the, uh, in the seabed. Yeah. You have the um, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, all those coastal states in the U.S., they are not cleaned up. And people are using these references like um, BP, they they settled in court for like six point something billion dollars. And that's like half of our GDP, which and that's like not even like what we do for tourism. So mm -hmm. you think about that like that, like if you give less than we make from tourism in one shot and say say oh yeah yeah sorry about that <laughs> but then it takes 30 something years to recover what does that mean and this isn't even talking about health effects so the cancer rates the medical issues that we have and when when hurricane dorian hit I was, I was worried about my friends and family that were on Abaco. And I lived there for a few years studying in the Parrots. Yeah. And I was really concerned trying to find my friends and stuff if they were okay. And I helped to like, even the data, the GIS data, um, I collaborated with Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. 
And I think we coordinated 104 scientists to map everything that was in Grand Bahama and Abaco immediately before the storm. Right. And being able to WhatsApp to Coast Guard and to the office of the prime minister and say, hey, there are 50 people that say that they're here and a helicopter could land on this area that we've identified that doesn't have water on it. Like being able to do that with science and mapping and it was really interesting work, but I don't want to have to do that last minute. Right. We should have this data all the time for our entire country. And if we could do that, I think we did it in like four days after for Hurricane Dorian, once we coordinated it. Um, there's no reason that we can't map the whole Bahamas in in the next year or so. Right. And how, how important do you think it is for us to do some like spatial mapping and planning? And then how equipped are we to do that? Like how many people do we have trained in? I know we have the Bingus, the what is Bahamas? Bahamas National Geographic Information System Center. Right. Uh, there's so there's a lot of things that come into it. The cost. Um, right now, there's a lot of open source things that you can do or methods that you can use. A lot of the information, this satellite information, you have someone flying a satellite around the world and they're just taking pictures all the time. All the time. Yeah, like there's, yeah. There's, a, there's images of the whole earth every 24 hours. Yeah. And, and so when you think about it like that, all that data is out there. We're a sovereign nation. So you can't just be taking pictures of our country all the time, right? Let us use it. Um, yeah. But then also like the, the proprietary software to manipulate and coordinate this data, um, that can be really expensive. But you have places out there that if you can say, hey, um, GIS Max, whatever this software is called, we'll make you the official GIS um, software of the country and all of our students have to learn it. That's a, that's a major market, but they don't have that like that right now. Um, I really love that cup, by the way. Um, so, so that's one cost thing, but then the amount of benefit that you can get from it, mm -hmm. imagine you had a GIS map of the whole country that included topography we knew where all the police stations, fire stations, schools, churches, um, medical centers, all of that are, all of those things are. Then when you talk about you're gonna run for our constituency, I want to know that my constituency is supported in that we have enough police for the population because some areas, they have a really high ratio of police two citizens and in other areas it's very low because of population density right. and it's yeah. medical so you might you might have you know a thousand people per doctor inside the south beach clinic but then you go to like the elizabeth estate clinic and maybe you only have 500 people per doctor right and not these issues of where people have to travel from constituencies over for medical care yeah to, to see a public doctor and then you have the issue where 
Hurricane Dorian comes and sits on Grand Bahama to the only other major um, hospital in the country is basically erased. And now you have people having to come over to New Providence and you you also like, you map these numbers out and 400 dead in the hospital for the country. Yeah. And they're all on one little island that's only 21 by seven. Yeah. Um, so we do have the question, what, what ministry does this come under? I, I was thinking, is it works, ministry of works? The, the, the mapping of the, the town planning. Yes. So so that's um, Ministry of Environment and Housing. And I think um, Bingus goes under them. But okay. really, when you have something like Freedom of Information or the data center, like these things should be more broad. And really, you should have a GIS expert that's inside the Public Hospitals Authority, the Ministry of Health the Ministry of Environment, Youth Sports and Culture, where are all of your um, stadiums and your fields and stuff like that? If one gets flooded out, if something happens, if you need to like move a situation, like right. how do you do that, right? And these are things that we can think about like really broadly, even with social services. You can talk about where are more children like starving, where are more, um, where's there more homelessness, um, drug abuse or addiction? And that way you could tie that in with the Ministry of National Security or whatever and say, you know, let's, let's, let's deal with this while the kids are young so they don't become the criminals that you have to deal with later. Right. And so I, I think all the, all the ministries can use more geospatial analysis and science, of course. Yeah. What is it? Um, we all need a little more science and a lot more perspective. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this, I think what I really love about the work that I've been doing is that I get to be a part of these meetings and these committees and uh, groups that are talking about these things, like the Sustainable Development um, Committee, um, the Technical Committee on Standards for Environmental Protection and Management, Anyone can join these committees. Right. You just have to have the interest and the time, and you have to be able to read, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, but but inside the when you talked when when we started the technical committee on environmental planning and management, mm -hmm. we had after one meeting, everyone from like um, different oil companies and gas companies, they were represented like almost right away. Like oh, wow. the industries were represented. But we struggle to find the time as conservationists or scientists or NGO groups to find someone within our group that we could have come and represent us on those things. Right. But like anyone can come and represent themselves, their their church group. Maybe you have a church on the ocean and you don't want it to get flooded out. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, in the notes, you talked about if you want to start a technical committee to make standards appropriate for your field or industry, the BBSQ, what does that stand for? The Bahamas Bureau of Science of Standards and Quality. Right. So if you, if you pull into the gas station on that, on that fuel meter, you have uh, a little sticker that says that the BBSQ check that, right? Mm -hmm. So having a standard 
doesn't take a side. Right. So, so standards don't say something is too long or too short. But you can say, this is how you measure something properly. Right. Right. And you may have some, you do have some standards that says this is too much um, oil pollution. This is too much of this chemical in the environment. Mm -hmm. This is how much chemical is normally in the environment. And this is how you measure it. Right. And then after that, once you have those standards in place, when I, as a scientist, I'm going to do an environmental impact assessment, right. I, can say, I am using these standards that were outlined like this, and I'm qualified to use these standards. Right. Then you go to the legal proceedings. A lot of people don't know that as soon as you walk into there and, and that lawyer, like, so who are you? Yeah. Why are to you? Right. Like these, these numbers don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then you have to say, yeah, this is what these numbers mean. And this is why they were developed. What it's fact from. Like it, yeah. So, mm -hmm. and, and we do have a question um, before we continue on that. Most of the publications out there about the Bahamas are often from foreign institutions. Why aren't local organizations and NGOs leading this? What's hindering this? And is it because of lack of support from the powers that be? So um, traditionally, we do have an issue of colonialism in science. So what that means is that these powers, like the ruling class, um, those who used to own us, like Britain, et cetera. Well, conservation started off as a, a colonialist concept, but that's for another episode <laughs> of Siren Sundays. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, for example, our conservation, like we now have a forestry act and we're trying to protect all of our trees and be able to use them for Bahamians to gain from that, right? Right. But before that forestry act, you have, you know, the land is partitioned in certain ways and sold and used for different things. And right, right before independence, the British government basically clear cut the whole Bahamas and sold all the wood. And when you think about how, how that works conservation-wise, and it's similar to the way science has worked, you had um, people that were very disconnected from the, the way regular Bahamians live, and they make decisions and choices for how science is conducted. And like I said, they have very little understanding of what you do daily, like how often you have to go to the food store, how far the food store is, how to make peas and ice. But then they saying that that oh Bahamians are this or Bahamians are that the Bahamian environment is this and that, and only been here for a certain amount of time. Um, so so that's how it's been in the past. But now most of the research that I've been reading, it's actually in collaboration with local NGOs or regional NGOs that have Bahamians or local scientists on that research, conducting that research and engage with it. Okay. And this is from my reading as a professional scientist. But again, that's not necessarily what you're going to see in the media. Mm -hmm. And you have to remember there are two different, there, there are different things. There's, there's what you intended to do. There's the actual impact of what you did. And there's the perception of what you did. Those are three, those can be three totally different things. 
And when it comes to science, you have an intent of what you're trying to assess or analyze. Then the data or the information that you actually get, if you had some biases or if you didn't involve the Haman people, you're going to really bias the data that you get. Right. And then the fact that you get, you know, you're not going to be able to conserve or protect your environment properly. And uh, same, Will is asking also, why can't why we can't lead? We lead? <laughs> Sir, we are leading. Lashanti is doing an excellent job right now, um, giving voice to what us as scientists are doing. Right. Um, I myself, I run science and perspective, and I I talk about these different issues. But I'm also I'm the chair of the technical committee on environmental um, protection and management. I sit on the National Wildlife Trade and Conservation Advisory Committee, um, and that deals with like people smuggling our species taking them out of our country, what needs to be protected and stuff like that. Right. Um, the Sustainable Development Goals Committee and all of these things, I am not doing by myself. Right. There's, you, you know, know, 10 to 30 other people, conservationists in those con conversation, conservation conversations. Conversation. Yeah, right. And, and that's, I want to coin that term for this show, conversations and conservation and conservation conversations. But what I was going to say is to Will's question, why can't we lead? I almost want to take that and reframe it to people watching. Why can't you lead? I think when it comes to conservation leadership in the Bahamas, I feel like there's sometimes, and I say sometimes because there are people that I see do have the initiative and are making a way. And I, again, use Crystal Ambrose as an example. She saw a problem and she didn't keep asking, you know, like, hey, uh, how can, can someone do this? No, she, she did what she could and now look at what she's accomplished she helped get the plastic ban for single-use plastics across the nation one person did that because they took the initiative and they decided to be the leader they decided to lead something and not by herself you cannot lead no, and like no people right i was gonna say you can't not lead nobody yeah, you, the point is, like and, and like you and i were talking about just before we went live it's all about finding your niche, right? If you feel so passionate and so driven about an issue that you're seeing in your community, whether it be something conservation related, something um, social, economic, if you feel so passionate about it, try to start the initiative. Try to take that passion, back that up and lead something and start off small. Yeah, just do it. This is who said, yeah, I'm gonna put that up. Just do it, just do it. And I, I'm, I love saying it's always small steps to a big change. When I started this platform, it was literally just me. I did a panel with the Sustainable Lifestyle Group, and then they said, hey, well, do you want to do this platform? And I said, sure, well, I'm a little anxious about it. And it evolves and it grows. And and that's what finding your purpose is about. It always starts with this small push. It's almost like a little pin, and you feel it, right? And you you know it's there, and you want to do something. And the only way that prick's going to stop hurting is when you actively start trying to take it out and figure out, well, what is this? And eventually, it you know, it blossom, right? Like caterpillars it hurts for them or actually spiny lobster. I'm going to use them as an example. And then I know I'm like rambling now, but I talked about this in season two when I had Michael Bolleg on the show. I always try to say, remember the, the spiny lobster. When you start feeling uncomfortable about something and, and you want a change to happen, you have to go through that discomfort to get to that level of comfort. The spiny lobster is very uncomfortable in its shell when it's time to shed it. And it has to break through that and then regrow its new shell to get comfortable. So yeah. just do it. Take the initiative, guys. And this is one of the things that um, <laughs> beings is Bahamians educated in natural and geospatial sciences. 
Oh, I should drop the knife. And around 2009, 2010, I was working for the Nature Conservancy and trying to find Bahamian scientists that were introduced in the marine and also wanted to be, uh, and were also like capable scuba divers. Mm -hmm. and it was like pulling teeth because the ones that had, had gone through these excellent programs, like the BESS um, Awards Scholarship, and remember to check out BESS, B-E-S-S, -S, Bahamas Environment Student Scholar Award. Yeah. Um, and that's on the brief website. But um, beings on Facebook, I they told me that no one had the money to do it. None of the organizations had the money to do it. None of them had the time or the personnel. And I was really frustrated and I was annoyed and I knew that we all needed it. And so I went and started it on Facebook with, I seeded it with 50 friends and I kind of governed the culture of it. Like there's no cussing. Um, we share like um, career opportunities, scholarship opportunities, ask and, and answer science questions. And now it's like, I think it's 1,200 or 1,300 members. Yeah, yeah you're at, I think, yeah, 1.2K. Yeah, and so, so like being able to see that grow as something that's for free on Facebook mm -hmm. and it just took someone to start it. And now every NGO in yep. the Bahamas that deals with conservation is represented in there. Yep. And you have students and teachers from the entire country and around the world that are offering scholarships that are taking advantage of scholarships. I remember like a year after we did that, we got the first student got a scholarship to go to NASA. And you're like, a Bahamian going to an aerospace um, scholarship? Mm -hmm. That would not have happened if we didn't jump off. But so, Will, I know you could find me. So reach out if you <laughs> want to get some more experience in whatever. We could talk if you Find want to him. use him. Else. Yeah, if you want to support someone else, that's also really important. Yeah. Yeah. So so just reach out and everyone can find me. I'm the easiest person to find. Um, if you could spell my name, you can find me. <laughs> definitely. And oh, we are uh, over the hour, but this was definitely a beautiful conversation, a great way to kick off the season. Very inspiring, very motivational. Um, do you have any final thoughts for our audience before we? sign off for the evening sustainability and science and conservation is is really the way to go mm -hmm. but more to that is education right. and so teach someone else but first you have to teach yourself so definitely educate yourself reach out to us and let us get you in touch with who can tell you about your environment more um yeah. you can get involved and then educate the people around you, especially your ministers of parliament and your parliamentary representatives. Um, tell people about the issues that you have in your environment and that affect your future, our islands and our future. Google that, our islands, our future. Our future. Yeah. Definitely. So. Thank you again, Dr. Davis. Sorry we can't get to the other questions, but we will most likely have him back. I'm sure a lot of you would love to see him again. Please, guys, remember, uh, we are connected to nature, and as our country, our, our chain of beautiful islands, it is not the ocean that disconnects us. It's what connects us to each other and to the environment. 
Thank you for tuning in to Siren Sundays, episode one of season three. I look forward to seeing you guys for the rest of this time here in the beautiful Bahamas. So see you in two weeks for our next episode. We will be having Crystal Ambrose talking about the Bahamas plastic movement and her journey through conservation. And I'm very excited for that episode. I hope you guys are too. And I will be seeing you. Thanks, everybody.